Welcome to the Purple Rock Survivor Podcast. I'm John, Johnny Ringtoss, Johnny Moonwalk, the Chuck Schumer of Ass Humor, the Tammy Duckworth of Butt Girth, the Marco Rubio of Bootio. And my co-host is Corey. <laughs> Welcome, Corey. It's been so long. Man, that was the best one you've done thus far. That was... Hey, thanks. That's a really low bar. <laughs> <laughs> thanks for having me. I'm so excited to be back. Yes, we have not talked to you in oh so long. I want to say like Cambodia-ish, maybe? That sounds right. Yeah, I think about three like real years. So approximately, you know, six-ish seasons of Survivor or something like that. It seems like it's been not so long and also a really long time. Yeah, you're um, definitely a deep pull for the longtime PRP heads. <laughs> yeah, I'm an official member of the Three Timers Club, which has... As non, you know, PRP staff members, I think that that's pretty high on the list, right? As far as guests go, I I think so. I'm I'm trying to think of what uh ha- who else walks in those hallowed halls, and it's 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 pretty empty in there. I think. Well, I I always strive to be the Alec Baldwin of any situation in my life, so I'm really happy to be sort of the the preeminent prestige guest host that you can bring on um, to kind of class things up a little bit. So happy to be here. Yeah, I can definitely not think of a better analog for you <laughs> than Alec Baldwin. Yeah, yeah, maybe a bad comparison, but you know, it's it's a place to start. So the reason that we've had we had you on is because I mentioned this in last week's podcast, but you are actually a wrestling fan. I know very few wrestling fans you are one. You also happen to like Survivor. And I thought before the season, I said, oh, this would be perfect. I should bring Corey on. We can talk about this guy who I had no idea about at that point, other than this is a man that is a wrestler. Corey might know who that is. Let's talk to Corey about Survivor slash wrestling all in the same podcast. And lo and behold, this man is a gift to Survivor. And humanity, really. I mean, let's be honest. But in this particular context, definitely a gift to Survivor. He is a phenomenal presence on Survivor, even more so than I thought as someone who would say that they were a pretty big fan of him as a sort of wrestling persona character in the larger wrestling universe, which I'm sure we'll get into. But yeah, he's been a delight thus far. Hey, it's John coming to you from the future, and I just wanted to let you know that if you really want to avoid wrestling talk, you're going to want to skip ahead to about the 20-minute mark, because we go on a really deep dive right about now. Yeah, and again, I had zero familiarity with him, so give me some sort of sense of, like, how big of a name is Johnny Mundo in the wrestling world, and, like, is, is there anything he's known for? Like, is he small potatoes? Is he, like, a huge name? Where, where are we at? I, I think the best way to put it is sort of somewhere in between. I mean, I remember after the premiere, I think Andy was talking about his sort of experience with uh, w- what was Johnny Nitro and then John Morrison, of course, as we know, many names. Um, and he, he mentioned that he wasn't a huge name. And I think that that's accurate. I think that he is a really prominent figure if you are a wrestling fan of a certain age like in your 30s like me um young 30s and you have followed wrestling for a while and you have kind of followed the wwe and maybe gone elsewhere because that's really what he's done in his career so as he started on reality tv on tough enough as you guys have talked about a little bit before 
um, and was a really interesting figure because he didn't really have much of a personality. Like he was very much clearly an athlete and could do all the things physically. But I recall many years ago that he really didn't have a personality that much. And then he eventually made it onto the WWE as part of a tag team with the Miz, who, if people are familiar to bring in other sort of forms of low culture who have dedicated fandoms, if people are familiar with the real world and the challenge, uh, he obviously filtered in from that world. And so they were a tag team of kind of like mid 2000s club guy, Hollywood wannabe scumbag types. And so that was their gimmick. That, they were like, yes. the, yeah, so they were sort of like an entourage loser. Yes. Level. Yes. But they, okay. so then they hosted a web show called uh, the dirt sheet, which is for people who are really interested in wrestling, what they call the sort of gossip newsletters that people who kind of quote unquote report on wrestling um, are called dirt sheets because they sort of existed in this weird wrestling world where every word has some carny jargon to it. And so they hosted this web show where they would do comedy bits. They would do kind of fourth wall kayfabe breaking bits. They would make fun of fellow performers and everything like that. And then they eventually moved up as a tag team. Um, and he then became part of a, another tag team along the way, um, had the Johnny Nitro moniker. Then eventually went solo as tag teams kind of always do. Um, and he became John Morrison. And the bit there, of course, was, you know, that he was going off of the lead singer of the doors and everything like that. Um, and played, he didn't really like play a, a drug addict or anything like that, or try to really evoke seventies culture outside of the way he looked, but he, he was known for at that time, his entrance when he would come in on TV they would blow his hair with big fans and then he would, mm. it, they would make it so it looked like he was walking in slow motion and sort of pyro would go off behind him and it would be this sort of overly dramatic um, rock star vibe. And so he's always presented as a kind of self-aware wrestling character, which is really fascinating because he has a very kind of traditional wrestling look. He's obviously enormous fit and everything like that, but, he has always been a little bit of a dry sort of sense of humor, self-aware type person. And he had a lot of what wrestling fans would call like mid card championships. And in the ring, he was really good because he became, you know, the Prince of parkour was one of his many nicknames at one point. Um, and he would do, does a lot of sort of high risk maneuvers and that sort of thing off the ropes you know, his finishing move when he was in WWE was called the the Starship Pain, which required a lot of, you know, kind of flipping and acrobatic moves off off the top rope. I was going to ask if he had like a signature move. So I'm, I'm glad to know. Yeah. Is it it's a Starship of Pain? Starship Pain. There's no of. Starship Pain. Yeah. Ju oh, okay. just, it's just like Starship Troopers. Yeah. Starship Pain. Gotcha. Um, And so he would kind of mix, you know, he also had one. Um, I believe that was called, I'm trying to, Moonlight Drive, which was a song written by Jim Morrison. So he kind of played that stuff up, right? Um, but he also hit this sort of glass ceiling, really, where, you know, what the pro wrestling and WWE in particular is maybe the weirdest culture that exists, um, for good and for bad. And there was a perception, I think, 
the the fans' perception of what they viewed or what they think WWE viewed him as is one of these people who is in that second tier of the kind of, you know, power rankings of talent. And so he would repeatedly get close to being the guy or one of the two or three guys. And then he would get put in matches with people like John Cena, for instance, and would lose. Um, and so he would be used as, you know, the guy who would do a lot of flips and would look really cool, but wouldn't really win when it counted. Um, and so there was a perception that he couldn't really talk that much because he had this kind of dry sense of humor and his character was aloof in some ways. But is is that a common thing, though? I mean, like, I don't watch enough. Well, I don't watch any yeah. wrestling to know. Like, I mean, you mentioned the self-awareness thing. Is is that not a common thing now? I, I thought that kind of became a thing that all the wrestlers sort of played it up and, and they knew it was an act and everyone knew it was an act and they all bought into it and it was fun and. And everybody went in knowing this. It, yes, absolutely. Um, he, you know, I think the weirdest thing about WWE is that you have to do that type of thing, like under their, under the construction that they've created. Right. And so like they want to break the fourth wall or bend the fourth wall in the exact way that they want to do it. Right. And sometimes, particularly in the era when he was coming up, which we're talking like 07 to like, 2011 is when he left, for instance, they were struggling quite a bit with the internet and social media and how to deal with fans who were like me and who grew up with the internet and grew up kind of thinking even more and reading more about the backstage stuff and the creative part of it. And so there were a number of wrestlers of his era, including The Miz, for instance, who did a lot of different things to kind of bend those rules. Um, and there were other good friends of his actually in real life who, you know, had really popular YouTube channels that they started completely on their own out of the purview of WWE. WWE had no choice to like recognize this performer, uh, Zack Ryder, who I, is who I'm talking to for any WWE fans listening. Um, you know, they had no choice but to basically recognize his internet popularity. They tried to tap into that, but then they had no idea like how to write for him because he basically wrote for himself and then they just made him look like a fool literally had him uh in a neck brace in a wheelchair and like pushed him off a ramp they might as well have like put him into a dumpster to basically say like we don't know what to do and from the fans perspective the interpretation is like you're not you're not allowed to like go out and get popular what WWE fans or wrestling fans say get over on your own right and so John Morrison was like never somebody who would push that far. It was clear that he was trying to be like a company guy who came up through this reality show. So he was trying to break that perception anyway, but he just couldn't like get past a certain point. And that was also this really awkward transition moment for WWE where they were dealing with the internet, the rate, the TV ratings because of all, you know, DVRs and internet streaming and all these things, everybody's facing declines in ratings and they didn't really know what to do. And there was a long stretch there, even as a diehard wrestling fan, where even I was like, yeah, this is so dry. And they were pivoting really hard to appeal to kids. Well, if you're looking for a broader appeal thing, like I, I had this sent to me. I think maybe Andy found it. I don't, I don't remember who it was. Um, I don't even know if you've seen this. I saw a trailer from maybe it was a movie that he was in. I couldn't even tell. If it was parody or a fake oh. or an actual movie, like that's how good it was. Was it, it was just was he playing a bounty hunter? 
I believe so. Oh, yes. This is a movie that he made. He made himself. Okay. Well, see, that explains it because it was honestly just constant excuses for him to do these weird flips and acrobatic shit and beat people up. And uh, like, I would not devote two hours of my life to watching it, but it was definitely an enjoyable two minutes to watch that trailer. I'll, I'll, I'll try to link the trailer in the post about this podcast because if you haven't seen it, you probably should because it just it feels very Johnny Mundo. Yeah, and that's called Boone the Bounty Hunter. And that's one of the things that he wanted to do while he was still in WWE, but actually didn't do until afterwards. So basically, by the time it gets around to like 2011, he, you know, there are rumors, whatever, true or false, that he's kind of frustrated, burnt out. He had some, there were all sorts of weird locker room things that sort of trickled out where he was dating uh, a longtime female talent. And then she supposedly cheated on him with Batista, star of Guardians of the Galaxy, of course. Um, and the, the longstanding WWE fan narrative, which all parties involved have acknowledged in some form, is that this woman cheated on John. And because like he didn't then go pick a fight with Batista, Vince McMahon then viewed John you know, Morrison as basically weak, as a coward, and therefore not a star. But because of the, like, self-awareness, like, fourth wall thing of the WWE, like, I I don't get, like, how much of that is actually real life versus a plot that they wrote? Like, is there some crossover? In in many cases, it's there's a crossover. In that, I mean, Vince McMahon is... One of the most fascinating, disgusting, compelling figures in, in the history of pop culture to the point where, you know, that story or that narrative about that kind of backstage thing is one of these like seminal WWE, you know, folktales almost that basically all parties have acknowledged is true. You know, he ended up dating this woman for a long time after that until he most recently got married to another female performer. Um, and so there was just this real perception in the WWE locker room or in of the administration management that he was somehow like not an alpha because his longtime partner cheated on him. And he basically accepted her apology and continued to work with everybody in a adult, you know, <laughs> respectful manner, which go, wow. which sort of speaks to the kind of interesting nature of him as a figure, right? Like on the surface, he looks like somebody who would potentially you know, blow up and they would be a huge tussle. And he's actually, particularly now, much, much bigger. He's younger than Batista. He could probably take Batista. No offense to Big Dave. But so, but the fact that he wouldn't do that because he thought that it was not the right way to go and it was a weird workplace thing. And this type of thing happens in wrestling all the time is really fascinating. So he leaves. They actually wrote that into the storyline. Like when he was leaving, like he basically, he either walked out or got fired on TV as well. Um, to make the, he was feuding with the Miz at that time who had become this kind of major heel figure. Um, and so that made the Miz look even worse, right? Cause he got his old tag partner basically fired from the company. And then he for a while kind of bounced around and did some very small independent things, did this movie. You know, he was in one of the Sharknado movies, either four or five, um, just to show you that. That seems very appropriate. Yeah, the type of stuff he was interested in doing, right? And then he's gotten lucky, and I don't say this as a criticism, that over the last five years or so, 
um, independent wrestling or non WWE affiliated wrestling basically has seen a real boom primarily because of the internet for all these different reasons that I could get into. But because of that, not being in WWE is way more lucrative than it was even a decade ago. So he has popped up in a number of non WWE wrestling organizations here and in Mexico, as he's talked about. Um, primarily he hasn't gone and done too much in Japan where the main sort of WWE competitor is, but he's shown up in a lot of these different places, a lot of big sort of weekend events that happen. You know, most independent companies run kind of competing events to piggyback up on WWE, like WrestleMania or SummerSlam, which is their big August pay-per-view, kind of their number two event of the year. So independent companies will run smaller events in those cities at the same time because they know all these wrestling fans are coming from around the world. So he's done a lot of those. And then the big thing that he's done where he's really taken the Johnny Mundo character is a show called Lucha Underground, which is a wrestling show truly embedded into a soap opera, um, which everybody always makes the comparison to wrestling, soap opera, everything like that. This is a show. And please tell me that that is where he is the George Bushy of Tushy. He's, I think he's mentioned it on there, but he, that's, I think he's done that more in the kind of broader Mexican, uh, sort of wrestling where they have a company called AAA, which is sort of the big Lucha Libre style, which is the fundamentals, you know, with the masks and everything like that, a lot more fast paced style. Lucha Underground is a show that's on the El Rey network, um, that is more heavily produced. Like they shoot it in this like factory sort of set, uh, warehouse set, I should say in Los Angeles. And they have like an evil boss figure that goes even further than like Vince McMahon. Like Lucha Underground is like a show where like pe- characters like literally get killed. Like they, di- you know, they get murdered. Um, people get like le- reincarnated and stuff like that. So he has been like a heroic and sometimes evil figure in that show as one of the own, one of the only American wrestlers because so many of the people in this show are from Mexico. Um, or from even broader around the world, but he as an American is, you know, sort of, it's almost like a, imagine, have you seen the Mortal Kombat films? Mm. You, you realize you just said films and you're asking me. Sure, sure. I saw I just, I just, it was long enough ago. I thought maybe, you know, you've seen the Mortal Kombat films, but imagine. Hey, you know what? I, I, it is possible that I have, but they came out so long ago. Who knows? I may have seen one. Right. So. If you haven't, I know you're familiar with the games, even by cultural of osmosis. Course. Yes. Imagine a, a TV show, an ongoing TV show that is basically Mortal Kombat, um, where, you know, there people have weird powers, um, you know, people get killed, there's weird mysticism happening, but then, like, the way that it's all hashed out is that they have these insane wrestling matches that are sometimes more violent than anything you'd ever see in WWE. And then at other times, like more technically proficient and more, you know, athletic than anything you would see. So that's an ongoing show that's still happening right now. He's been the champion, uh, at least one time in Lucha Underground and been involved in a lot of different stories related to that. I think there was, if I recall the way I found out that he was going to be on Survivor, you know, long before this season aired was, Something related to like the weird scheduling with Lucha Underground where it was clear that like he was not going to be, he wasn't going to be there or he was only going to be there for part of it. And then that kind of trickled out that maybe he was going to be doing something else, which ultimately ended up being Survivor. So he is not a, you know, top tier figure, but if you 
pay attention to modern wrestling, he is definitely in the conversation. So, you know, as far as like notable people that they've had on the show, like he, he actually is underplayed, I think, from my perspective. And again, I'm, I'm obviously biased, but I think he does really, he is a, a key figure in his industry. Well, I feel like I now have a sense of the man's career. I, I honestly thought he was like much more of a lesser name because I, I think the corollary, of course, would be athletes on Survivor, right? And so I'm trying to make that comparison. I'm like roughly where he'd rank. And, you know, normally if you've got athletes on Survivor, they're going to be retired people. And the interesting thing to me is that when you have those retired athletes, they kind of have like a rep to protect, right? Yes. Like even, even though they're retired, they still, they don't want to tarnish their brand, um, by doing anything on Survivor. With a wrestler, wrestlers can almost say and do anything they want on Survivor and not worry about tarnishing the brand because they can just roll it into the gimmick. Like, I think wrestlers have a higher upside on Survivor because of that. Yeah, I mean, after seeing him on this season, and I think the thing that I've been considering a lot over the past few weeks is the untapped sort of resource that exists out there with wrestlers for Survivor to recruit these type of figures. I don't think as many will be as self-aware and, you know, <laughs> articulate as John Hennigan is in his real life. Um, or even willing to kind of play with his persona in the way that he so clearly is, even in his real job. But I think that they do, as you suggested, they have such an awareness of how to play up to the camera, how to manipulate their voice, their physical performance to the people around them, because that's, that's their job. You know, their job is to play to the crowd, whether that is the crowd of 75,000 people at WrestleMania, which John has done, or to, you know, play to 19 people in a glorified like flea market, which I'm certain he's done as well, both before WWE and even after, right? Well, in this very episode, we saw him talking stagecraft with Christian, and he was saying, you know, you got to give the fans what they want, and the reason they like the moonwalk is because, like, he went into the technical aspects of amping up a crowd, and uh, I really enjoyed him, like, pulling back the curtains and letting you know his whole, like, M.O. in how to hype up a crowd. That was, that was entertaining to me. Did you enjoy seeing that, too? Or is that just, like, a common thing in wrestling? Well, I think it, it's a common thing. And I think it's it's common in that if you're interested in wrestling, right, that, you know, one of the things when I try to sell people on why I think wrestling is fascinating, despite the fact that as an industry, as a culture, uh, it has historically been, you know, a toxic cesspool of... <laughs> just wildly regressive (laughs) yeah wildly regressive hateful awful people um however the art form of what these men and women and people do is truly insane like the thing the example that i always point to and then i'll circle back to you know the episode of course is you know in this stretch that actually he was a prominent figure on wwe tv in kind of the mid to late 2000s when they were trying to figure out what this show is they really pivoted hard to we are kind of a weekly variety show and so what they would do is almost every week for monday night raw they would have guest hosts from celebrities who had something to promote as you know they would basically like 
do Leno, do Letterman, and then many of them would do Monday Night Raw to promote, you know, whatever film they had coming out or new TV show, etc. And almost to a person, these, you know, significant celebrities, most of whom were actors, would get out there in front of a live crowd on a random episode of Monday Night Raw, whether they were in Chicago, a major wrestling town, or like, you know, uh, Columbia, South Carolina, um, which is a major wrestling town, but a smaller venue, you know, and they would just look absolutely terrified, right? Just to, just to talk, you know, some of them would get physical. Like there's a few celebrities who have been unbelievable in wrestling. Like Hugh Jackman was fantastic, but he's also a theater guy, right? So he kind of, he knows that live crowd and that sort of experience, but there would be, just a parade. Also, as the Wolverine, he was super jacked. Absolutely. So you could just buy that if he punched somebody and then somebody sold for him, like, easy, you know. But right. you would see these people and they would just be terrified. And I always point to that as like, yeah, and the performers who work and do wrestling as their job do this like 300 days a year, whether there's 25,000 people there or 25. And so their ability to think through the performance aspects of it is it's almost incomprehensible. The things they have to do and the split second decisions they have to make that involve the physical aspects, the, you know, movement they have to do and working in tandem with one or more people. And then the emotional stuff that you have to do to sell people, you know, that like the underrated thing about wrestling. And I guess why people pull the soap opera part is that, you know, the ongoing stories are great, but the individual stories of a match where people are selling the emotion of that 10 to 40 minute exchange, only the really good people can do that, you know, in a way that's effective. And so to hear him articulate some of the things that he's had to think through just to do the things that he does, because, you know, for him in particular, he's somebody who does a lot of things off the top rope and moves really fast and jumps around and is the prince of parkour. So. For him, there's this expectation that he's going to be doing all those things. So then he has to mix in much slower movements. Or if he's working as a heel in certain locations like Mexico, I'm certain that he's taking away a lot of those big time moves, right? Because people pay to see him do them. So how do you get people to boo you? You stop doing the moves that people want to see you do, right? You go up to the top rope and you act like you're going to do the starship pain. And then you just jump down and like poke the guy in the eye instead. Right. And that's, that's cheap heat, but that speaks to like the, all the things you have to think through and the way that he was able to articulate that to Christian without seeming like, you know, I'm this, I'm the big tough wrestling guy talking to you about uh, how hard my, you know, really physical work is. He was explaining it to him, you know, like a performer, like an artist. Right. Exactly. I, I enjoyed that. It was like giving him acting tips or something. Yeah. And, you know, of course, in this realm, in the survivor realm, when there's always one of these, you know, nerd types that are trying to, like, basically learn how to be a human, right? Um, it's always fun to see people try to articulate to those character types, like, no, this is actually how you relate to other people. You know, you smile at this opportunity. You don't smile at this opportunity. And I thought this is one of those better, a better version of that just because it felt like a, a really natural exchange that somehow also like taught Christian like, Oh, okay. Yeah. Like I get, you know, the different, the different performative natures here and how I might be able to even apply that to just like talking to the people on my tribe. Yeah. I, I, I've enjoyed the fact that both of them have 
some degree of difficulty relating to normal humans for differing reasons, but uh, like that's what they've essentially bonded over. And that's, that's been entertaining to watch only because of the disparities in body type between the two. <laughs> like you just don't picture them both suffering from the same sort of social awkwardness, even if it's, you know, different subgenres of social awkwardness. Right. And it seems like in this case, you know, John had a couple of uh, confessionals earlier in the season where he talked about his own social awkwardness to me. And again, given having a little bit more of a perspective, it doesn't feel like he's he's even putting that on. Like it does truly feel as much as we can know that he he does feel awkward, you know, because even just yes. sort of the way he talks in those moments and the way he's even kind of moving around camp sometimes, it's clear that he's thinking through not how do I blend in like strategically, but just like, how do I relate to these people? Because even though I'm really fit, I don't know how to relate to people just like anybody right. else does. And everybody thinks that I am this, you know, un like completely opposing figure. And I really just want to talk to them about, you know, what their hobbies are or whatever. And we should actually get into the uh, man who at least for a while had to learn a little bit about wrestling and it for writing research, if nothing else, because Mike was the one that was identified in this episode, at least as like the swing vote. So we have to ask the required question every week. Like, was this the right move? <laughs> and I think that centers on Mike this week. Did you feel like Mike made the right move? <sighs> I, ultimately, I, I think so. I mean, I think, you know, there's, there's an assumption that particularly these days on the show, even as someone who follows the show a lot, I, I think that generally speaking, the cast, when they're out there, they have a pretty good idea or feel like they have a pretty good idea when things like the merge are coming. Um, and so to me, it seems like it was the right decision just going into the first initial moments of the merge to be able to say, you know, to the right people, like, okay, I was Goliath strong in this moment, you know, like, obviously, uh, last week was a different situation, but I feel like the, the Goliaths who are remaining are not going to be too upset about the Natalie boat. And so right. this, this one, I feel like he can sell to the right people that he needs to sell it to. And anyone who's a remaining David that he had, you know, that he's got connections with, you know, someone like Nick, I think they're going to be able to navigate that in a way that the, the other Davids are not going to be so upset uh, by that decision either. How did you feel about it? Well, I I mean, I do think that Lyrsa probably would have been a good and loyal ally. Yes. More so than Angelina. But, A, Lyrsa shot herself in the foot by saying, like, to both Angelina and uh, Mike, yeah, I guess I'll stick with Nick. Like, don't ever close the door for yourself like we we yelled at penner for this in the past for being like oh i'm not so sure about this alliance just say yes lie and then figure <laughs> something else out later like lyrsa screwed up there but i think regardless it was probably in mike's best interest to get rid of her just because going into the merge he can't really know i mean obviously he's probably hit up nick and lyrsa for some information but he can't know for sure how tight that David tribe is. And so he doesn't want to entirely like hitch his wagon to their side. And then he runs into the situation that Cochran ran into in Karamoan, where you just pulled yourself into the bottom of a super tight alliance and that you will never, ever crack. 
Um, so this kind of like hedges for him because it leaves some avenues to work with his old Goliath teammates. And then it also gives him Nick that he can work with and maybe there's some votes he can pick up elsewhere where he could still conceivably work with either side. Um, and I think honestly, it just judging by the previews, it looks like he should be pretty safe next week. That was going to be my follow up is, yeah, I don't really think Mike is going to have to have much to worry about in the first, you know, uh, merge vote anyway. So I think people might initially think like, Oh, okay. And then they're immediately the scrambling that's going to take place that always takes place, uh, at, at the merge, um, probably will result in him flying pretty far under the radar, at least for a few votes. And I think it's not fully clear to me given, and I think who knows what he knows of this situation, of course, but it, what we've seen of the, of the original David tribe, they had such a weird, you know, experience the first nine days. Right. So to try to really nine or 10 days. So try to understand really like how close some of these people actually are who are left from the David tribe to under, to know exactly who am I going to jump to? Or do, do they really have any bonds in a way that's meaningful? So it seems like by going this route, he is able to at least say like, you know, put his fist up and basically say Goliath strong and then move from there. Right. And at least he's, right. he's navigated around that first talking point when people are just kind of looking around thinking like, okay, who are we mad at? And he's not going to be at the top of that initial list. And then after that, people are going to start scrambling around and looking for, you know, big targets anyway. So I think he'll be fine. Yeah. Um, sticking with this tribe though, I, I mentioned Angelina. I, do you get the sense that she's being played up as this like entitled villain, or is this just something like the the woke ass Twitter crowd is going to pick up on, and no one else would think this at all? I'm conflicted. I I will say I have had a complicated response to her this season because I think she's a really compelling, entertaining figure. Um, but I also think that she, at least based on what we've seen is trying hard in a way that has kind of set herself up to be framed in this way. Like, I don't think everybody's trying hard. It's stupid to say somebody's like trying hard to fit a particular role or a particular archetype. Like they're all trying hard. Um, except for maybe like Carl, I don't know if Carl, what Carl's actually, no offense to Carl, but I don't really know what he's doing. Um, so, but it does at times feel like, you know, this season I'm watching with somebody who's really never watched the show. So I've been sort of making parallels or explaining like, oh, this person's like this person. And I, I was sort of explaining, you know, the history of poverty and that kind of thing. And I was like, Angelina is sometimes it feels like to me that she just watched, she watched a lot of tape on poverty and she was going to try to do as much of that type of thing as possible. But I also feel like her tribe mates are so aware of it in a way that they're not you know, we see them not charmed by it, but then she continues to survive. And yes. And so it's like, well, maybe you actually are very charmed by it, you know, and that goes back to the poverty thing that like, it's easy to do a confessional where you say, oh, you know, like she's really, she's a schemer, you know, she's doing all the strategy, she's pushing too hard. And then, you know, she says a couple of things in tribal that even people roll their eyes at, and then she stays. 
See, that's the thing is I, I think she's just so transparent. Like the, the thing with her complimenting Nick in the middle of tribal council, like it, it was so like, how could you not see exactly what she was doing? And I think Nick saw what she was doing. I think the whole rest of the crowd saw what she was doing. Like again, last week with the jacket, like, Mike is putting his head in his hands because he knows what's happening. He's laughing. Nick is shaking his head. Like, they all see through this act, but she continues to push it. And I don't know that she's playing a character. I think she might think she's being super charming or, like, this is her working her quote-unquote social game. And it's just, to me, it's super entertaining to watch. And I feel like the show is setting her up as like sort of a comical villain type but i mean th- this show has such a broad audience that maybe they're not you know like maybe the seven ish million fans that are watching this don't see that same sort of thing yeah i think that I, from my perspective I'm, I'm closer to your viewpoint i don't think they're really setting her up to be kind of a very stereotypical sort of female villain figure in as much as that they are you know, she is just driving so much of the action, whether implicitly or explicitly. Like, I think from my perspective, I really enjoy her in confessionals and in around camp. And then like she, when she gets to tribal, she goes from like, she's already at like an 11 and she just ramps it up to a 15 and she's sort of giving props looks and not just in the like, can you believe this? But like, you know, like I know I'm guiding the conversation and I know I'm sort of playing this game. Um, but you know, this meta game of what happens at tribal and the character archetype I'm sort of fitting within, but I love it. And you kind of love that I'm doing it and we all love that. And so those are the moments that I feel like, oh, I'm a, I'm a little great. You know, this is a little grading, but I don't view that as like villainous behavior, you know, like it, it doesn't, right. to me, it seems like she's playing the game. She's, she's decided to pick this lane and she is going to pursue it until it does not work for her. And so for me, I, I think she's a really compelling figure and I don't, I don't really view her as a villain as much as just somebody who's really driving the action and is really playing up her character and her performance in a way that, you know, someone like John is definitely not. Well, see, and that's the thing is I don't know how much of this is her playing it up because I don't know if you've noticed this, but I think Survivor tends to cast for a little more self-absorbed crowd true yeah and then maybe might exist in the broader population (laughs) (laughs) so (laughs) just to put it mildly um so it's so hard to tell like does she know is this an act that that to me is the fascinating part about angelina and it's it's enjoyable to watch i'm glad she was cast i think her game is completely doomed because everyone's going to see right through her. I just don't know if she knows that they see right through her or if that self-absorption is strong enough to make her think like, no, I got this. I'm controlling the game right now. What's, what's compelling to me about her is that early in the season, you know, when she was sort of linked up uh, in the, in the Goliath tribe with Natalia, like to me, Natalia was so much more, grading which was obviously why she got ousted very quickly um but there was just this sense that like okay 
Angelina is actually the one kind of like running that little trio of women and really that's, you know, that six group sort of alliance in the Goliath tribe. And then, you know, as soon as Natalia is gone, now it's like there's way more attention on Angelina. She's getting a lot more screen time. And now it's like, oh, okay, maybe I'm also, you know, maybe the show is sort of positioning her to be a little bit more grating than I originally thought when it was a little bit more of, oh, she's just really charming and kind of guiding, you know, actually making the decisions while the other people are maybe a little more upset by some of the smaller things happening around camp or just kind of going along with it. And so now that she's been in this, you know, tribe that has not had a lot of success, I think it's it's put more of a spotlight on her, which obviously she loves, but it, then it makes her more of a figure to sort of poke at and wonder what the purpose of her is in the season. But I think you're right. It, she's she's going to be in trouble no matter what happens between, like, David's and Goliath, right, at the merge. Like, she's not going to be able to hide because of all the things that she's already done. And it doesn't seem like she's the type of person who's going to be able to get to the merge and say, okay, I've got to pivot and play a different type of game now. Like, she's just going to keep pushing forward with this strategy, particularly because she's going to be reunited with some of these people she's been desperate to get back with. Right. She has one speed and one skill set, and that's what she's going to keep hammering. Um, I'm glad, though, that you mentioned characters and, and their particular roles on this show, because A, it's time to do a season check-in. And B, before I let you give your season check-in, I want to point out, Allison was on TV this week and was not voted out. Please update your edgic charts accordingly, nerds. You were very wrong on that. All right, so (laughs) I just like to get in the edgic shots wherever I can. So we have obviously not discussed this season with you at all. So tell me where you're at. What what are you enjoying? Uh, What are you disliking? What what threads people whatever what what do you like i think this is one of the most enjoyable seasons in a while um and i know you've talked about that and other people have talked about that on the show but i find this group of people to be far more interesting and also likable it feels like the producers seem to feel that way because we're getting a what appears to be and again i'm not an edgic person i am not a like uh confessional spreadsheet person or anything like that. It feels to me like this is way more balanced than we've had in recent seasons. And by that alone, I think it's a more watchable and enjoyable experience. Um, you know, I think the fact that this has been such an enjoyable season, despite the horrible weather that's dominated and two, you know, injuries slash evacuations is a real testament to the people that they have on here. And the fact that they've you know, somehow completely just superseded the absolutely stupid theme, right? Like, right. I feel like I've already, and this happens every season, but I mean, this was perhaps, you know, I'd have to really think about it, but this is probably the dumbest theme they've ever done. And Ooh, that's I feel, a really high bar though. <laughs> I know. I know that it is. I know that they created no caller out of thin air. Right. Um, and, and I understand all of that, but I think that they, that I've, mentally moved on so quickly and can say like the David tribe and the Goliath tribe and not just stop and say, Jesus Christ, like the David tribe and the Goliath tribe. And like this week, Christian had the confessional where he was sort of talking about, you know, how so much of his life is sort of been a David. And now he's like moving to this sort of Goliath stage in different ways and different personality traits and that kind of thing. 
I wasn't even like fully annoyed by that because he has become a, if not, I wouldn't say fully sympathetic character, but someone who I'm not just like, oh my God, I get what you're trying to do. I'm annoyed. We get too much of you. Give right. me somebody else. Like, I feel like they've balanced it out enough that I'm not upset to see the same like three people on my screen week in and week out and know you know at this point i feel like the last few seasons i've known already like oh okay yeah that's probably the person who's gonna win or who's gonna get you know voted out like fifth because they probably should win right and i think that has been the big difference for me this season you mentioned like the balance i think i'm not saying like this cast is loaded but I think that the lows of this cast are much higher than the lows of previous casts. So you can kind of like, there's at least some thing, some level of entertainment that all of these people have brought. I mean, I shouldn't say all, but for the most part, everyone has something about them that makes them interesting. It might be like a strategic thing. It might be, you know, the, their relationship with some other person it might be their strategic talk it might be how they're suffering emotional story like whatever there's there's something about everyone and people aren't getting like written out and purpled in in survivor parlance and i don't think that that's the show necessarily like trying to do that in response to previous two seasons i think that that they just couldn't do that in the last two seasons. I don't think they had a cast that they could lean on. And I think this time they do. And it makes such a difference because I don't dread seeing any of these people in a confessional. And there's when certain people come on the screen, I'm like, not only do I like the person, I feel like there's more there with a lot of them. Like I, I can see, you know, if this person gets far, like, Oh, I could root for that. I could get behind that. And there's not outcomes that I'm actively rooting against, which like in heroes, healers, hustlers was all the outcomes. Like there was no good <laughs> outcome. So I, I don't feel like there's any of those dire paths yet that we could go down where I'm like, Oh God, no, just please not that. Like it just, it seems like, there's a lot of reasons to be optimistic. And it seems like whether like explicitly or purposely through the casting or just by happenstance, the people who are on this cast have seemed more willing to have more interesting conversations. And again, we never know what we see and what we don't see. But like, as you said, if, if people in previous, the most recent few seasons had interesting conversations, like we would have seen them because they needed the material. But I think back to something like the quick conversation that we saw, at least between, you know, Jeremy and Natalie, where they were sort of talking about, you know, how African Americans communicate with one another and how they should get each other's backs and how they feel about that. And even this week, when there was that little moment about Angelina talking about her and Lyrsa and, you know, the fact that they're both Latinas and that kind of thing. And even in that moment, I was like, okay, Angelina, like, I see what you're trying to do yes. even for the camera. But it's like, that sort of stuff doesn't happen on every season. And that's not me also saying that like Survivor has suddenly gotten woke. It's just this mix of people has been willing to acknowledge those moments of similarity and then the, the moments of difference and not in a hateful way. You know, I think this cast has been, the show has been really com 
competitive, you know, even the, the challenges that have gone, you know, we've seen like a consistent sort of string of victories for the TV drive, for instance, or whatever, but like the challenges have been relatively close, uh, you know, other than one this week. And so it seems competitive, but people don't seem like hateful or spiteful. And obviously that will eventually change, of course, as we get closer, but it's just been a much more enjoyable experience to watch because it feels like people are playing the game, but they're also having interesting conversations that are worth watching without turning into just kind of a angry, hateful, you know, spite fest. Well, one thing that I've found interesting, and I'm not going to say that this is like the cause for this cast and this season being more interesting, but this was an incredibly diverse cast, like in lots of senses. I mean, there's multiple LGBTQ people. There were, you know, a higher than normal percentage of people of color. There was a variation among jobs. I mean, you got multiple cowboy hat wearing people. <laughs> you had like a professional wrestler. I mean, there's, you know, you're always going to have like the nerd archetypes, but at the same time, like there's a broad mix. It's not like seven bartenders, you know, it, I don't know that that's necessarily what's causing the interesting dynamics, but I kind of hope the show like takes that into account. Like maybe it is. Why not try this again and see if you get similar results? Like I think they deserve the praise for the cast and some of that praise should probably be based on how diverse this cast is. And the weird thing about that is, you know, I'm, I'm sure you've seen this probably in passing. I know, unfortunately, I have to admit that I saw this on Survivor Reddit at some point, Oof. uh, that the, that the, they got rid of the casting director. Um, yes. who's been the casting director for the, uh, basically the entire time, I think. And she's gone. I think she left after the next season. And so you really, if based on everything we just said, you really hope that like, if next season is also diverse, you really hope that probes didn't say like, nah, I didn't like that. You know, right. Like we, <laughs> there needs to be more like daddy probes to put the foot down. Yeah. Blue collar guys, more guys from New Jersey, more cops. That's um, right. We need a Blue Lives Matter season, and <laughs> that's the way we're going to go. We're going to go cops versus firemen. <laughs> I don't care if it's all dudes. <laughs> In fact, that's what I want. Right. And if you could, just make them all rips, like 12-pack abs. That's what I need. Can we get John back? To, has he played a has he played a fireman character or anything in the ring? I'm, sh- I'm hey. certain that he's been at least like a, you know, a male stripper at some point and put on a, a, a police uniform. Let's bring him back. I, I don't want to give probes ideas. <laughs> I really don't. Um, all right. So, oh, I, I should, I should ask before we move on. Are there any things that you're disliking? Anything you're hoping to see less of or not see any more of? I, I really don't want to see anybody have to go to, is it Exile Island this year? I can't even remember. Yes. Okay. Where Carl went, the island, the, I, I just, I don't want that anymore. Like it's not, most important, like, even if it, if, if you said it didn't affect the game, okay, whatever. It, do, it adds nothing to the TV product. Like, it's a waste of time for the TV product to watch that person walk down an abandoned beach with a, you know, sort of helicopter drone shot from the sky and they kick around some dirt and then they, like, answer a question or, like, you know, play with some locks and maybe they get a worthless advantage or not. Like, I just don't care about that. I don't want to see that right. anymore. I felt like, 
it's kind of embarrassing that after last season that we even immediately returned to that idea. Yeah, and of all the people that you could have had end up <laughs> there, like Carl carrying your Exile Island like side scene was just not going to happen. Like he's he's one of the few in this cast that the heavy lifting is just not there for him. Uh, I, I think you could have gotten at least a little bit more interests there if it were some other players on this season. But yeah, I, I'm with you. I'm I'm fine with not going back to Exile Island again. Um, but on Exile Island, he did get that idol nullifier, and that could come in handy because next week we're finally merging. We got some teases from the preview. There's all sorts of things that could be coming together here. I'm going to try to hit on a couple of the storylines that seem to be teased from the preview and some stuff that we just know is running from previous episodes. Um, first of all, the, the easy one is do those first tribes still matter at all? Like, is it still going to be a David versus Goliath battle once we merge? I, before this week, I thought it was going to matter a little bit more, but I think, you know, you mentioned Allison a moment ago. Her smart observation that Dan is probably going to be a problem, um, is, I feel like we wouldn't have seen that scene this week if that wasn't going to be a key part of the next couple of weeks. And it, particularly because we haven't seen much of Allison at all. So why? give it to her this week. Um, so I think Phrasing. it's, in, it's, <laughs> it's interesting because she has had such a minor role that the potential for her to, you know, join up with Gabby and potentially then Christian. And what does that then do, you know, for God help me Mason Dix. I just have to say, I forgot the the naming of alliances, you know, mm -hmm. that's a big brother thing. I don't know. You know, I'm sure that, you know, it's obviously happened on Survivor before, but like, I don't know if Nick just also loves Big Brother and he wanted to bring that, inject that fully into Survivor, but we got to get that out. Yeah. He seems like the type that does love Big Brother. Sure. Absolutely. I'm, I'm I mean, shit on Big Brother fans. You don't know any that are on this podcast, do you? No, absolutely not. Not me. Okay, I, I, no one who's on this conversation has seen like almost every season, but I mean, he's also from, you know, Kentucky. He's, you know, I I will as someone from Indiana absolutely shit on Kentucky. So as you should, he has nothing else anyway. So what what's going to happen? But like this sort of Nick's named alliances with Christian and Mike, and how does that pull in potentially Gabby and Allison? And is there this? You know, those are really like if we're thinking about the traditional dynamics of Survivor, that's kind of a, a Davidy group, right? Like a bunch of nerds, really. Um, getting together and potentially going after some of the more traditional physical threats, quote unquote. And then based on, you know, and I'm sure you're going to get to this based on the clip, like whatever the hell it is, Alex going to decide to do in that moment, just because like he's bored, like he signed up for something. He's like, how long are we going to be out here? Yes. Um, and so I'm just going to flip on somebody because I'm bored. Yeah. And let's, let's talk about Alec because I definitely wanted to bring him up. Like, I love that the preview tease that Alec just cannot help himself. Like he, <laughs> I, I am, I am all in for Alec as this wild card that puts absolutely no thought whatsoever into any decision that he makes. And if that's what we're getting, I, I love it. I think it'll last about two episodes before everybody realizes like, no, you know what? We're actually just going to get rid of you. 
But if it, you know, can manage to stick around for two episodes as he thinks he's playing both sides when really he's just pissing the entire group off, I want to see that. Yeah, and it seems like he, you know, he's one of these figures, like an agent of chaos, but he doesn't seem to have any real malice behind it, right? It's like somebody just looks at him or sort of talks to him a little bit more sternly than he thought they were going to. And it's not always, you know, the previous decision he made to to sort of flip the vote, it wasn't it wasn't a completely incorrect decision based on what we saw because he felt like he had been just kind of ordered around. But you also didn't really get the sense that he had any follow-up plan. He was like, I'm going to make this decision because I feel like I need to. And I'll do tomorrow, tomorrow. And he happened, exactly. he happened to get lucky that there were no sort of, there was no real fallout from that, right? But now it seems like he's going to be in a situation where he's done well enough in the challenges, right? That if he starts pushing this, you know, flipping back and forth or even just, picking a new side and sort of pushing forward from there that people are likely going to say he's also like doing decently in challenges we can't afford to keep him around much longer if i want to give him credit and i don't know that i do it's possible that he did survey the landscape and think you know what i see that purple tribe it seems unlikely that i'm even going to have to deal with repercussions from this natalia vote because that purple tribe is doomed to lose some challenges. So maybe he thought that that would give him enough of a lead time that he'd be safe. And if they did actually have to go back to tribal council, like there was the possibility that someone that's not him is going to get voted out. So maybe that was his plan. I I don't know that I put that much trust in, in how well Alec thinks about the game on a day-to-day basis. Um, We did mention Allison though. I feel like she is thinking several steps down the road. And I think that Dan blindside is coming, right? Like it, it does feel like that is a plan and he might go home with two idols and we'll get like a China James situation again. And that'd be kind of great, right? Like Dan feels like he could be the, the James type character that would go out with two idols and feel like a dummy and hold them up and smile and be like, ah, well, I'm an idiot. Definitely, particularly because in a merge situation, he's going to feel extra confident with the idols, with the bonds that he has, with the brochachos, and now that he's going to be back around Kara, it just seems like he is going to be riding super high, right? Like, you, he's going to be one of the first confessionals we get of just like, man, I love where I'm at. I've got my bros, I've got my girl. I've got my idols. I don't have all this weight. I hope you didn't forget that I lost a bunch of weight. I was previously fat. 280 pound Dan is so (laughs) jealous of me right now. Right, right. I had a bunch of weight and zero idols. Now I have two idols and no weight, you know, like, (laughs) and so like, that's going to happen. I feel like you just wrote his actual (laughs) confessional. Like we're going to play this back next (laughs) week and be like, oh my God, that was, that was verbatim what he said. Yeah. And so I think that that's, that's like one of the first three people that we're going to see once the merge actually happens is sort of the immediate reflections. And I think if, if they don't get him this week, you know, I could see a bunch of scrambling in this first week and then kind of settling on a less volatile target and then maybe getting him in, in the, in a subsequent week. But yeah, I think Allison, because she's had so little screen time, it's hard to read exactly you know what her presence is going to be in the game i think 
linking up with Gabby is a really smart thing to do for her game. And I think, you know, she's obviously observant enough to recognize because I think anybody could, you know, Gabby just staring holes through the brochachos, like as, you know, very sad music plays because she's been left out of this sort of experience. And so it's a really smart move to go to that person and say, Hey, you and I need to link up. And more importantly, we need to go after this figure who Gabby is already identifying as like the person who sort of took her main ally away, right? Both her personal right. and kind of strategic ally away. So I think that there's going to be enough people who are going to be gunning for Dan that I think it's going to be really fascinating because I, we haven't really had to see Dan make any major strategic decision, right? He's been basically finding idols, uh, you know, potentially trying to start a showmance and then coasting from there and obviously doing well in challenges and whatever, but he hasn't really had to make any major decision yet. And so, that will be a really fascinating thing to see who's actually, you know, with him in a long-term context. Right. And I'll, I'll tell you the, like, the strategic route to go here is if that is the target, if the plan is to take out, like, blindside Dan completely, vote, get him in your alliance for this first vote. Because once he feels like he's in an established alliance, you know, a voting block for this first merge vote, then he he's going to feel safe for the next vote. The next vote is when you take him out. Don't do it at the merge when everybody's scrambling because he's probably, even though he's probably going to feel pretty safe, like everyone's going to be a little bit paranoid at the merge. It's probably not going to be you, but it could be. Like once there's some sense of safety in having voted together, that's when you take him out. And if they do it, I'm a genius and I'm going to take all the credit for that. <laughs> Especially with the numbers, right? So he's also going to, you know, if we're going to write his confessional, he's going to throw something in there about the numbers that the Goliaths have. Even if he doesn't really in the macro care about the Goliath alliance, he's going to mention that. And so it seems, it seems if, if it's not Alex sort of blowing things up, you can really imagine a world where there's a lot of chatter about how to pursue a potential, you know, uh, removal of Dan from the game. And then they eventually decide to vote out Elizabeth or Carl or something like that, you know, just as a way to not even as part of a two step plan, but they can't exact Allison can't wrangle the votes or whatever. And maybe we end up with a less exciting first post mood merge boot. Yeah. And I think that's kind of going to be the way that we're going. I, I think the Brochachos thing, we never actually. It never became a real voting block because they didn't ever have to vote. Right. So I think that actually does materialize. I feel like that's a real thing. Um, I think that also frees up Gabby to actually work with Christian again. Like he can, or she can do that outside of the tribe of five. Um, it's possible that that entire group of five end up voting together and then they just have to bring in a stray vote or two. Um, and I think let's move into predictions. Um, once, assuming that that is a block of five, they're probably going to pick up an extra vote or two somewhere else. And I think you make the easy choice and take out Alec this first week because he's physical, like you said. He seems like he might be an insane wild card and that would spread like wildfire, like the rumors of what Alec is trying to do. He doesn't seem like the most discreet of people. It, it seems like 
word's going to get out and everybody's going to be like, you know what, Alec this week, I would prefer it lasts a little longer and he gets to keep trying this, but this feels like the week we lose Alex or Alec. What do you think? Man, that's tough. I mean, it's funny. We've gone all the way through this predictions and we haven't actually mentioned Angelina at all. Does that mean you think does her performance, like is is she going to be able to continue forward because there are so many more, you know, visible targets in a way. And I guess if they, if everybody just decides we're annoyed with Alec, then that sort of saves her from that line of, you know, she's no longer a threat if we eliminate the person who is consistently saying she's a threat, at least in the short term. Yeah. And I think more specifically, um, she is going to be like, guys, guys, I've got the plan. We convince Alec that he's on our side. Um, don't worry, I'll do it. And then at tribal council, she has this monologue about, <laughs> you know, Alec, I think you're awesome. And like, I know I'm staying Goliath strong because I've liked Alec from the beginning. And I just, don't blame you for what happened in the other yep. tribe. I understand. Yeah, yeah, she's she's going to lay it on really thick to the point that Alec's going to be like, oh my God, it's me. But there's not going to be anything you can do at that <laughs> point. And then the rest of the tribe is going to be like, just why, why? What, right. what are you doing? <laughs> They're going to annoyingly go along with her plan. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. Because at that point, you can't hit abort in the middle of tribal council as Angelina is giving this like soliloquy on why Alec is so great right before she goes to vote him out. Um, so yeah, that's, that's my incredibly detailed prediction about what I think happens. It's hard to disagree with that. I mean, I think the only way based on the previews, of course, and based on what we've seen, it seems like so much of the action is centering around. Angelina and Alec. And if it's not one of them, I think the only thing that could potentially happen, because I, I just, I feel like the Dan thing is a little bit of a longer play for the season, just be, what we've seen and how Allison's plan was just sort of hatched last week. I, I really do think the only other potential option is that somehow all of this maneuvering sort of blows up and then they just decide to eliminate one of the Davids who is not sort of loosely affiliated with the group of five and a couple stray people. And so just because I think the, you know, these additional advantages never do anything uh, for the show in a meaningful way, I'm going to say that that ultimately means that Carl is eliminated and this, this advantage did absolutely nothing for him and he did absolutely nothing. And he's, it's just gone. You know, I, I think that certainly adds to the potential entertainment value for the season because Carl is one of the few that can drag down the entertainment value. So I, that'd be a great start to the merge. <laughs> um, I don't know. I don't know if I see anyone feeling like they need to get like Carl yeah. seems like such an inert object <laughs> that you wouldn't you- bother. Do you think, yeah, and I mean, I, I'm basically going with that because I think you, you're on the right track and I want to pick something different. Do you okay. think, do you think Carl has any idea what's going on in the macro um, sense, like in the strategy part of the game? That scene where he was on Exile Island, I feel like he probably had to be coached to even go look for the, for the, uh, <laughs> advantage. Like, I don't know. I don't get the feeling that his heart is totally in this thing. He, you know, he got out there. He was probably enjoying it for like the first, I don't know, couple days. And then like people started getting evacuated and he's getting rained on and he had to spend a night alone. And at this point, he's probably just like, you know what? What am I doing? Like this, this isn't me. 
I could be home right now. I could be driving a truck somewhere. Yeah, I think he's he's just checked out. I, I don't know if he was ever checked in, but he just feels <laughs> checked out now. I'm already imagining that hit when he does get booted, he's going to do kind of a slow double take and like take off his hat and then sort of look down at the ground and then just, you know, have that reaction. Just like, it is what it is, you know, and, <laughs> and like, it could be read as is from the tribe mates as like, wow, we really upset Carl, but it's actually just like, he had no, like, he's going to get blindsided, even though it's like an, you know, 10 zero vote. Right. And, it's, <laughs> right, exactly. and it, nobody like, <laughs> nobody like, made a lot of strategy to decide like we got to get rid of carl it was just like uh yeah carl i guess like i don't what, what else do we got like people we know people got idols the other people you know want immunity like i think he could be i feel like the only way his advantage becomes interesting is that if somebody else like uses it right like yes. if somehow someone else gets it and they use it or someone else gets involved and says you know, here's how we have to use this, Carl. And he sort of looks at them, you know, quizzically. And then eventually, again, kind of slowly nods. He's like, I get it. I get it. I get it. Cool. Cool. Yep. I think the, one of our commenters suggested this. And I'm probably going to screw up the theory entirely. But the more entertaining way for him to lose is if somehow he could play the idle nullifier and like say, oh, I'm going to play the idle nullifier on Dan. and then. Dan ends up giving Carl the immunity <laughs> idol because Dan was trying to blindside someone, but Carl accidentally nullifies his own immunity and then gets taken out in a fight. <laughs> and Dan's blindside plan is wasted and Carl goes home at the same time. Like, that is the highest possible bar for a Carl exit. And I just, I don't feel like we're going to get there. It would be great if it happens, but it, we're not. Yeah, and in the po in like in his exit interviews, every exit interview would start with like the reporter explaining like, "Well, here's how you got eliminated," and every time right. he'd be like, "Right, that is absolutely how I got eliminated. I understand that. I fully get what's <laughs> happening." Yes, you just wanted to make it super clear. Um, mm -hmm. I I too watched the show, and I now understand what did happen. Uh, okay, so hey, America, if you have not yet voted, and I'm speaking specifically to America. I don't know what you other countries do. I know Brazil just voted. I don't know what other countries are doing. But America, you should go vote if you have not already done that. You should vote for the right people. I mean, I really shouldn't have to tell you who the right people are if you've listened to this podcast more than once. But <laughs> <laughs> do, you, do you have a competitive race in your state? You know, actually, I've, I've moved to Illinois. And so... The governor's race here is actually interesting because people think of Illinois as a predominantly blue state, which is true. But the governor is not from the party uh, that's usually represented with the color blue. And so that's an interesting race, mostly because the the blue candidate is flawed, to say, mm. to say the least. Um, I tend to think of Illinois governors as being remarkably corrupt. Yeah, I mean, we've all seen The Good Wife, right? And many other things. And so anybody who works in government in Illinois is remarkably corrupt as far right. as I've come to understand it. Yeah, that that's just my general impression. I can only assume that that's based on reality. I can think of at least one actual governor <laughs> who was very publicly corrupt. So, yeah, that's just what I'm going to assume is that both of your options are corrupt. And so the only choice is to, you know, 
hold your nose, pick the less <laughs> terrible option, which so many of us have to do and honestly should do. Pick the less terrible option, people. That's all I'm asking. I, I could not agree more. Um, I love, I love that the Purple Rock podcast is getting politically engaged. Um, <laughs> it's, it's so great that we're concluding here, given that we started most of the show talking about wrestling and WWE will, by the time this post, be in the midst of its second Saudi Arabia propaganda event that they have received oh repeated criticism for doing. And they said, we've made the difficult decision to accept millions of dollars from Saudi Arabia and do the show anyway. Um, and they have doubled down by using this platform to bring back Hulk Hogan. Um, oh, that's a, a thing that they should do. Um, yeah. yeah, I should. <laughs> I was not aware of this news, so I should let anybody know that uh, is so incredibly disgusted. We have a pretty woke audience, so <laughs> I'm going to go with, you know, hey, we talked a lot about wrestling at the beginning. If you want to skip ahead <laughs> about 15 minutes or so, I don't know, we talked about it for a while. So if you want to skip ahead like 15 minutes, because you are like, hey, I don't want to learn about a, uh, I guess they don't call it sports entertainment. That's what they call it, right? Sports entertainment. It's not wrestling. I don't want to learn about a sports entertainment corporation that decides to endorse a country that just potentially killed a man. No, not even potentially. Definitely killed a man. And have killed many, many people before that. But that's sure. that's neither here nor there. We're we're going way off topic right now. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, I'm sure you all tuned into your Survivor podcast for these hot political takes. But um next week you should listen to this podcast again and you'll be delighted to learn. I'm lying, no you won't. It's gonna be Andy and Emma. Sorry everyone. Um but that's happening next week and hopefully they will be rejoicing with some good political news. Uh, anything else, Corey, before we go? I'm good. Thanks for having me. All right. Then let's hit some theme music. 